All right, welcome back to Yin and Yang, the podcast. We are here with special guest Peter Kageyama. Uh, thank, thank you so much for joining us. Yay. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Yeah. So Peter is a uh, author. He's known for uh, such works as uh, "For the Love of City," uh, "For the Love of Cities." Am I saying that correct? "For the Love of Our Cities." Yeah. And, uh, for the love of cities, sorry, and uh, which is also the his uh, nonfiction website, which you can visit to see some of the his previous talks and his works on that, where he talks about urban development and for people falling in love with their cities and writing love notes to their cities. Um, he's currently on a book tour, a virtual book tour of his book called Hunter's Point, and uh, which is stars Katz Takemoto, um, a private uh pri a pi private investigator who's tasked with uh research uh looking into some not so not so nice things that are happening over in the hunters point area um which is uh said in the late 50s late in san francisco in late, yeah late 50s in san francisco cool um sorry anything i i miss in that intro anything <laughs> no no it's very good so yeah he, cats is a nisei uh obviously it was uh and hunter's point is a real place in san francisco uh yeah. there it's got its own very sordid history as well so right and it's still yeah i, I that area i just because i we're both uh we have both lived in the bay area dan and i yeah. and i mean i i'm from the bay area. i grew up there yeah. and i know san francisco that was like a place you don't go it's still you still don't really go yeah um because of um, that that history there's also that kind of like dark history of like the you know radioactive waste and that was uh that not many people like that was pretty much covered up i think by the government oh yeah it, it yeah. was like i said it has an incredibly sordid past there's a a friend of mine is a, a well-known author on the west coast from san francisco he described hunter's point he described bayview heights as the mordor of san francisco okay you know, you know you're talking you'd get the reference, but you're absolutely right. It is a, it is an environmental disaster there. Um, it was a naval base. Um, it was the, the, the Bayview Heights neighborhood was the home of like all of the dirtiest industries for, you know, a couple hundred years. The slaughterhouses were there. There was, you know, there was a, a coal, um, uh, coal plant, uh, energy plant, uh, you know, there and just like bad, bad stuff. And because it was, it was a mostly, you know, immigrants and then uh, African-Americans, and it's like, that was the area. It's like, okay, yeah, let's dump all that stuff in there, including dragging a radioactive aircraft carrier after the Bikini Atoll tests in the South Pacific after World War II. They dragged wow. a radioactive um, aircraft carrier back and parked it at Hunters Point Naval Yard for several years. What could oh. go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, before we uh, dive, like do a deep dive into your current uh, novel, let's get uh, a little bit, uh, let's let's find out a little bit about your background uh who you are where did where did you grow up um i know your your father uh he was actually uh he's a japanese american or he was uh he's from japan or is he no dad, dad was a nisei uh, oh, born a nisei, in san francisco yeah. got it yeah yeah uh, but uh i'm a sansei uh but i was born in akron ohio and uh my dad married a redheaded irish woman from ohio <laughs> And uh, I grew up in Akron, Ohio, and there was nobody who looked like me uh, there. And very few Asian faces, and uh, it was definitely a different uh, sort of uh, uh, upbringing, you know. And uh, I, San Francisco holds a very special place in my heart because that was the first place I ever went to. Uh, my dad took me there when I was like a, a sophomore in high school because he wanted to show me where he was from. And we went to San Francisco and I looked around and go, oh, my God, there's people who look like me. In fact, a lot of people who look like me. It was like it was revelatory, uh, you know, at that time. But uh, yeah, so it was. Uh, yeah, I'm a Midwestern boy at heart uh, there, Ohio State, um, and now live in Florida for about the last almost 30 years now. Awesome. Yeah. And growing so growing up in Ohio, uh, did you because like not many people look like you did you face much racism at all or yeah i mean you know people made fun of me they made fun of my name you know because you know, you look a little different uh there and uh, i mean comparatively speaking the stories i've heard from other you know friends and other people it's like i got off very easy but yeah mm -hmm. it was there uh, and i was conscious of it um but i was also i grew pretty big i'm six foot two um <laughs> 
Yeah, I didn't get picked on that much. I did study martial arts because I was required. Oh, if you're an Asian kid, you had to study martial arts <laughs> at some point uh, there. And um, yeah, so uh, I think my experience with it was, yes, it was there. But I think my experience compared to the way you know, many other people's was very, very mild. I was very lucky in that sense. Sorry, so, tangent, what, but what, yeah, uh, yeah, go ahead. I know arts. what dad's going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What martial arts did you study? I started out in, with a uh, little Chinese Gong Fu okay. uh, at first, but then I moved into kickboxing. Uh, and then by the time I got into college, I was uh, studying Nimpo Taijutsu uh, there with uh, with my teacher. So yeah, a little bit of modern stuff, a little bit more traditional Japanese stuff uh, as well. And how long did you study at Nippon uh, Taijutsu? I got to a third degree black belt. Oh, very nice. Yeah. And then oh, what, style, what style of Kung Fu did you study? Mm. It was like a mixed bag of stuff. Uh, my teacher was actually the father of one of the other Asian kids um, <laughs> in school. Um, his name was David Han. And uh, he he knew uh, Tai Chi, but he also knew like some Qigong. Uh, and like, uh, I think it was mostly like, um, uh, like so, uh, I, no, I want to say Northern style uh, Gung Fu. It was, there was no, I, I studied for about a year and a half with him. Right. You know? Just enough to learn uh, enough of the basics and realize I kind of was more interested, I think, in kickboxing at that time. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you're young. You want right. to, you know, yeah, it's, it, that felt more appropriate at the time. And so. then being Sansei, um, did did your dad have any, like, cultural ties to Japan? The Nisei, I, I know it's like it starts to go farther yeah. and farther away from Japan. Yeah, my dad went to Japan twice, only twice. Uh, there, he, he was born in San Francisco. He went to a Japanese school as a kid uh, there, and, and my whole family was all, was interned. And then after the war, my family didn't go back to San Francisco. They they went and mostly they stayed in Chicago. And then uh, one of my aunts also moved to Washington D.C. My dad goes to school in Chicago, and eventually goes to work for Firestone. Um, and moves to Akron, Ohio, because Akron is the rubber capital of the world mm. uh, there as well. But dad had, dad wanted to go back to Japan and he did twice. And I remember he told me, he goes, you know, um, I went back to Japan. He says, immediately, he said, folks knew I was not Japanese or right. I was not from there. Just by right. looking at me, he said, he didn't even have to open his mouth. Of course, you know, he spoke Japanese, but he spoke American Japanese right? Uh, in that sense. And it was so... Yeah, he had this, it was an interesting kind of conversation because he realized even though he, you know, he looked at the, the part, um, he was definitely, you know, an outsider. And I think yeah. that's, and you know, that's very characteristic of, you know, of Japanese society. You know, there is, there, you know, it's it's a closed society. They're very gracious, very welcoming, but, you know, yeah, it's, it, it's, it is who we are. And then there's the rest of, you know, the rest of the world. So, right. Yeah. What about yourself? Have you gone back to Japan? Once, um, I was just talking about this with James, because I know he's in the Osaka area. I was an exchange student in high school uh, to Japan, and I was in the Osaka area uh, there. And um, I was supposed to go back. My wife and I were supposed to go back for the Tokyo Olympics. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> that got pretty sideways uh, there. Yeah. So unfortunately, that uh, all got botched up. But we will, it is on the, uh, it is on the agenda. We will go back to Japan. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that. Do you, are you still in contact with any relatives back in Japan? No, unfortunately not. Uh, my dad had uh, a distant cousin who he was friends with, um, who has since passed. And uh, yeah, uh, I, I know a few things. You know, I know my grandfather is buried in Chigasaki. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, unfortunately, I have lost those those connections. Mm. So your your grandparents are from the Chigasaki area, or yeah, Chigasaki, Yokohama. Uh, yeah, they were uh, Issei. They came over in the uh, early 1920s, mm. and uh, their three children were all born here in the states in San Francisco. Yeah. So then, your grandparents and your parents then were all interned. Then, uh, yes, is, is that correct? Uh, okay. Uh, Topaz in Utah. Um, yeah, March. 1942 mm. evacuation executive order 9066 yeah. Japanese exclusionary zone yes so yeah I know uh you've mentioned in previous interviews how like that was kind of a not really a, a big talking point you had with your father even though it was a big part of his yeah. you know life it was, and, yeah um my dad's generation they didn't talk about that stuff 
Um, Dad would make these casual sort of offhand remarks, you know, because I, I mean, I knew about what happened. I knew about camp. And he'd say, oh, yeah, back in camp, something happened. Or the, I met these were my friends in camp or, or there was you know, it was just in camp. But he never really dug into that. And he was very reserved, um, very kind man, but he was not, you know, very talkative, not very emotional. And he never really opened up about that stuff. And so writing about this stuff, this character who went through this um, was sort of a way, I think, of having a conversation with my dad that I never actually could when he was uh, when he was alive. Mm. I, do you feel like maybe that was. Hmm, was that a cultural thing or was it that he was ashamed of the time at camp or. Well, absolutely. I, yeah. I think yeah. it's both. I think it was actually sort of uh, characteristic of that there was shame uh, about that uh there that um there, i mean there there were certainly there were protests uh there there were the no no boys the ones who wouldn't uh, uh, yeah. the, uh you know the the oath and whatnot and there were protests and there were things that were taken to the all the way to the supreme court uh there but i think there was something about the experience that my dad's generation, they felt kind of ashamed that it happened to them. And then they just didn't want to talk about it. They wanted to move past it, you know, sort of put it behind them, you know, and that's um, unfortunate that, you know, that many of the stories, you know, that ha now have to be sort of unearthed and sort of realized by, you know, the Sunsei and the Yonsei, the third and fourth generation, you know, kids of these, you know, uh, of these folks, because uh, it explains a lot of things about that generation and why they kind of maybe why they were the way they were. Mm. Uh, you know, like I said, my dad was pretty closed off about a lot of things, except I will say this, that the friends he made in camp were lifelong friends. Um, I'm named after one of his best friends who he met in camp, Peter Matsumoto. Uh, and his other best friend was named Masa Takatoshi. And when I actually created this character for this book, Hunter's Point, uh, his name is Katz Takemoto. And I took those two uh, uh, names of my father's best friends and brought them together uh, there. Mm. So they, that it was an incredibly, it was a bonding experience, but it was also, it, it was a very challenging experience. It was, you know, very complex. Uh, and in some, in some ways it was, it was very good for him, for them, but in other ways it was very, you know, emotionally scarring uh, as well. Mm. Yeah, I know. Did for, you ever meet uh, your grandparents? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Several times. Uh, my dad's um, uh, parents, they came over several times. Um, and my grandmother lived to be 98. Wow. Uh, wow. There, yeah, she passed. She, she uh, came uh, after my grandfather died. They actually went back to Japan um, oh. in the 1950s, which is interesting uh, story there. But they came back and visited multiple times. Then after my grandfather passed away, um, my grandmother really couldn't take care of herself in the home. So they ended up selling the home and she moved over here to the United States. And she actually ended up living with um, my aunt, the eldest daughter uh, there. And yeah, she lived to be you know, close to 100. And I got to hang out with her. I got to spend you know more time with her. Mm. My Japanese was not very good. Her English was not very good, but we smiled and nodded our heads a lot. So, yeah. 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 I think language is definitely, um, especially for like, uh, immigrant children or, uh, it's, yeah. it's a, it's, I, I, you probably saw from like the trailer I did for my short film that that was a big, um, inspiration for that short film was like, how can you connect with older generations? There's the generational gap, but there's also that huge linguistic gap, different language. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, uh, as mean, far as your, yeah, go ahead. I didn't grow up speaking Japanese. My dad never spoke it at home. I had to go to college to learn Japanese. Mm. You know, and so I feel like I, I missed out on something. And I think that was part of, you know, the, the goal was to, you know, was to assimilate, fit in, you know, and, and by doing that, you didn't speak, you know, Japanese. My dad really didn't make, you know, Japanese food. We had a couple, you know, we had, you know, uh, you know, mochi on, on New Year's, but that was about the extent of our uh, cultural uh you know, uh, heritage, uh, as it were. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I mean, did you guys, you know, did you grow up speaking, you know, uh, your, your parents or your grandparents language? Um, I, I actually grew up speaking Japanese because my mom grew up in Japan. There and you then, go. um, I, early on, we lived with my grandparents, so I spoke Mandarin as well, but that was like the second language. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 And my grandparents helped raise me, so they didn't speak English. So my first languages were like Taiwanese, which is 
it's it's i guess it, it's it's very it's in unintelligible to mandarin but it's considered the dialect just because it yeah. doesn't have a military power but like uh but uh i speak spoke a little bit of mandarin and taiwanese with my okay. grandparents and then i at age five i was speaking gibberish so my parents were like okay <laughs> let's let's speak english at home we're living in america james yeah so then i i lost those so i had to relearn mandarin as an adult so i can speak yeah. mandarin now i'm learning japanese now because i'm um yeah so yeah my my family is from taiwan um so yeah i do think um and you might have felt this too peter like relearning language is kind of like reconnecting with that with your family it's like talking oh like oh it's reconnecting with an old family member that that language like i i remember hearing these words but i didn't know how to use it in context you know or yeah uh yeah i my grandmother lived long enough that my japanese was at least rudimentary and when you know i i get to see her uh then when i was in college I think it it was it pleased her a lot that I mm. at least made the attempt. Uh, and, <laughs> I, uh, that those were that was a good time. So yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. That's great. Then, did your aunt, since she um, helped take care of her grandmother, did she speak or did she like cook Japanese food? Both of my aunts did. Um, actually, my my it's funny. The eldest aunt, she just turned a hundred last year. Wow! She, wow! So, uh, Fortunately, she has um, she has uh, dementia, and so she's not you know uh, present. But she's a hundred years old. They're, you know the the women in my family apparently quite long lived uh, there. Uh, but um, the two my my dad was the youngest child, and my, he had an, uh, a middle sister as well. They both passed uh, there. But though the two aunts actually did, they had a bit more of a connection to you know to Japanese uh, heritage. I think part, partly because they you know. Girl, you know, you know, uh, girl children learn to cook in that generation. Right. You know, mm -hmm. uh, male children didn't necessarily do that. So my dad couldn't rub two sticks together, uh, <laughs> stuff like that. But you know, my aunts were were good cooks, and of course, the you know, uh, Japanese food was part of the, you know, uh, the 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 rota, I guess. So yeah, they made it happen. Food is important. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it's just a way to like it, it's a one way to pass traditions from or cultural things yeah. from one one generation to the next, and then. Are your cousin or did your aunts marry Caucasians or did they marry Japanese or? Uh, they married Japanese. So it was uh, my dad was the uh, the rebel in the family, I guess. <laughs> he married uh, the uh, redheaded Irish woman from Ohio. Um, and yeah, both my my aunts married uh, also uh, Nisei uh, men mm. uh, there. So uh, but then, of course, you know, the 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 Sansei, their children pretty much all married, you know, uh, Caucasians. Uh, so there's, you know, so now, now the next generation, they all kind of look like me. So I, I'd like to think I was ahead of the curve. So. <laughs> and do you have siblings? Yeah. Oh yeah. Do you have siblings? I have a half sister, uh, okay. from my mom, my mom's second marriage. So, okay. Yeah. I was she just curious because yeah, if you had siblings growing up in Akron, Ohio, there would be at least some other, some other else who no, looked like you. <laughs> no, I was uh, I was the lone one in the wilderness, as it were, and you know it's you didn't fit into. I, there, there were you know a few Asian kids, and my first girlfriend was actually James. My first girlfriend was Taiwanese. So oh, uh, interesting. There's that you know. Um, but yeah, it, you didn't realize that you know being mixed was an even smaller sort of you know uh, slice of the pie. It right. was. Uh, you know, it's, you know, you realize, you know, later in life, go, wow, that was kind of different, you know, uh, you know, being in, you know, a very Midwestern, very, you know, um, yeah, you know, uh, kind of a monoculture uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, but when we were asking about whether um, we spoke our grandparents' language, my kids do not speak their grandparents' mm -hmm. language at all. So no. that's like completely lost. So my mom's living with us now. And the my my kids actually use like a pigeon English when they speak to her, thinking right. that it helps with the explanations, but it, it really doesn't. <laughs> no. Well, isn't that how most Americans when they travel overseas they they speak louder and slower? Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, that'll, that'll work, sure. Um, well, uh, hopefully some of that you know some of the the grandparent you know rubs off on, on the kids. Uh, yes. They, yeah. But then, uh, as far as your book is concerned, um. How did you come up with the idea of the setting and the, the time period? So the book was really a COVID project. You know, hopefully okay. you, know, you get out of COVID, you had you know a little bit more time and you're thinking about some some different stuff. And I actually read an incredible book uh, there in 2021 uh, that kind of like, oh, my God. 
I actually have it right here because I thought I'd show you guys. It's, it was this one, uh, Facing the Mountain by Daniel James Brown. It's okay. an amazing story. It's about the the sort of the, the history of Japanese Americans during World War II. And it reads like a fantastic novel. And it was, it answered so many of the questions that, you know, I wish I'd been able to ask my father, you know, my grandparents uh, right. as well about life before the war, you know, during the war, during internment, um, the Nisei, the, the, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, you mm -hmm. know, the ones who fought in Europe uh, there and sort of the experience after that. It's like, oh my God, this is an amazing story. It's like, I, it's like, wow, this would be, this is a fantastic sort of background for, for, you know, a story. Um, and then this idea of setting, it's like, well, what would happen with one of these guys who came back and what would he become? Maybe he'd become a detective and maybe in San Francisco, because, you know, a lot of the, the Nisei went back to San Francisco and um, it just started to percolate. And uh, I started to write and I didn't tell anybody I was actually writing fiction because I never had thought I was going to write fiction. I've always, I'm a nonfiction guy. I've got four books about cities. What am I doing writing about, you know, private detectives in San Francisco? But San Francisco seemed the natural spot because of the Nisei connection. And it was also because San Francisco, I think because of my father, and San Francisco has this sort of mystique to it, right? There are certain cities that have that. You say San Francisco and you think of the fog and the water and the hills, right? You say Paris, you think of like the Eiffel Tower and the sand, London, and you know, and you know, and places like that, they have this built-in mystique. And certainly San Francisco had that. And then I, okay, in the time period, I start doing some research and you start thinking about, well, what was going on in San Francisco in the late fifties? Because that would have been like the age when this guy would you know, kind of come into his own. And there's really amazing stuff happening there. And the, the first part of the story was originally going to be set against the making of Vertigo, one of my favorite yeah. films, you know, Hitchcock, uh, yeah. there. Yeah, Hitchcock. It was, you know, filmed in San Francisco in 1957. It's like, that'd be an interesting sort of like, okay, what could you do with that? And I start researching more and more and more. And Vertigo is in the book, but it's not the central theme because I found out a bunch of other stuff, including, as we were talking about earlier, about this incredible place called Hunter's Point that was a naval, you know, base. It was, you know, that there was radi there was radiation. There was all kinds of shenanigans that were going on there. It was all kinds of cover-ups. And it became sort of like, all right, there's a story in there. And let's set this character against this amazing backdrop with this real stuff that was happening there. It was a lot of fun. Mm. Yeah, it was a great time. That's great. And you also, yeah, yeah, you you weave in like historical figures as well, which I, yeah. I know can be kind of um, dangerous, right? Because they're like, there's a lot of people, a lot of fans of Hitchcock, a lot of fans of Jimmy Stewart and sure. all that. Yeah, yeah. And you also uh, have uh, well, a fan Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, as a fan, you know, so I have, you know, Hitchcock makes an appearance. Jimmy Stewart plays actually a kind of an important part in the story. And then there's other folks, there's appearances by like Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, because they were, I mean, the late 50s in San Francisco was like, that was the height of the beat poetry and the beat renaissance that was going on there. So this North Beach connection that's going on there. And Shig Morrow, who was a real life person who was integral to that whole beat poetry scene he was part of the um uh, that he wasn't a poet wasn't a writer he was actually the manager of city lights bookstore and you guys know if you don't know san francisco it's like the city most Light. famous bookstore in san francisco and it had this great history and shig was a, a a big part of it and what made it interesting is when i discovered this it's like okay shig japanese american he was a nisei oh he was interned oh and then all of this like it's like huh, I think he should be in the book. And then I start researching more and more about him and he became this really fun character to write. And in some ways he's like the hero's sidekick uh, there. And I love writing about him. He was a very real person. And I, you know, I, I he passed away 25 years ago, um, but I hope he would uh, smile and say, wow, I'm the, I'm the, I'm one of the heroes in this detective story. It's like pretty cool. All right. There's, there are, I, I didn't know about Chick until I started, you know, um, yeah, doing a little either. bit of research about this, uh, about your book. And it's, it's interesting how, like, how there's all these central figures kind of like um, in the background and you just, they happen to be Asian American, you know, and yeah. you didn't, and you're, and that's something I think many of us as, you know, Asian Americans are looking for. It's like, where are these stories? You know, like they're there, but for some reason they're not talked about. And so I do appreciate that your book sheds light on some of these, these, these figures, these Asian American figures that probably don't get the limelight, which is, which is yeah. a shame, you know? Yeah. Which is a shame. Um, 
it was interesting. There was a Shig was part of you know this um, in 1957. The there was this poem by Allen Ginsberg called Howl. It sort of started the whole beat poetry scene. But he, he, they published the book. City Lights pub, was a publishing house as well, and they sold the book to an undercover cop. And Shig had the distinction of being the poor sob who sold the book to the cop. <laughs> so he gets arrested uh, and charged with obscenity under federal law, as mm -hmm. along with uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who was the owner of uh, of City Lights. So these guys are charged with obscenity laws for publishing this book of poetry. And it's a pretty, you know, it's a, it's a powerful poem. It's, you know, it, it's, it's famous, look it up, uh, you know, there, but it's hardly obscene, but it took a federal judge to make that ruling, you know, and Shig was part of that. That's like, that's cultural. That is important stuff, mm. but he's kind of lost in the, in, in the story uh, in all that, but you're right. Uh, unearthing these little gems of, of, of our history was one of the real, you know, uh, things I, I was like, wow, this is, uh, I, I'm very glad I'm doing this. I know because Asia, so first of all, like San Francisco and the Asian American movement, the ethnic studies movement is integral to the city of San Francisco because essentially ethnic studies was born in San Francisco during the, uh, I think it was San Francisco City College, I believe. There was okay. a, basically a, uh, there was a there's a, a protest that turned violent, unfortunately, uh, at uh, in San Francisco, and basically they were students were demanding for ethnic studies department, and right. so ethnic studies was born in San Francisco. So I do think that yeah, San Francisco Asian American uh, history, mm -hmm. and you know owes a lot to that city to that place. You know, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we tend to think about San Francisco as being sort of this liberal progressive bastion uh, there. But going back and doing this research, you find out like in the 1950s, it wasn't all that wasn't always the case. And, you know, there was still a lot of, uh, of racial animus uh, that was there. I mean, we're good. They, you know, San Francisco eventually gets there. But issues, are, you know, with Asian-Americans, with African-Americans, Hispanics mm -hmm. and the emerging gay population as well were real strong flashpoints. Uh, that took the 50s and 60s, and it really doesn't start to sort of emerge until the 1970s and 80s uh, as well. So I know for you did mention the No-No Boys and uh, 4042nd. Um, so mm -hmm. have you ever read John Okada's No-No Boy? It's a book uh, that he talks about a No-No Boy um after the war and his experience um have you ever heard of uh, that book i have or, i have okay. heard of that book and it yeah. is one of those things that in in sort of my research like this is something i probably I, I need to to read you know as part of that uh there so it's it's on the list right uh, yeah so have you read I, it i've read it it's it's a it's a fascinating book one of my favorite asian american books and because it shows um there's 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 different sides of the coin for nationalism, right? So I I understand from the internment there are some people who yeah they were bitter, they were mm -hmm. and you mentioned some characters in your book hiding that bitterness, right? Mm -hmm. uh, of of like oh you know we should still be proud of our country, but actually inside they're like why why is our country putting us yeah. in essentially concentration camps, internment camps, right? And so this book plays the voice of that character who is his is is incredibly angry at his country you know and that's why he's a no-no boy he that's you know well even yeah uh, and it it kind of like talks about that perspective whereas yeah. there's the flip side of that of nationalism where there's the 442nd people who are dying literally yes. dying for their country they're the most decorated military uh, regimen in the u.s history i believe it's that's this correct yeah. yeah um and but it's interesting though, because like if you were try to make a fully ethnic, you know, Japanese American or Asian American uh, 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 unit today, that would be like, no, because can't, uh, no, can't yeah. do that. Because you know what's yeah. like that 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 unit's going to go. They're going to die. They're they're, they're going to be put to the front lines. You know, or that's the that's kind of like the implication. That's like kind of the racist sort of undertones of that. If you were to do that now, um, could you talk a little bit about? Um, yeah, maybe about sort of that um, that wartime background for like your book sure. and for for your own like how important is that to you when you were doing the research and looking into this yeah. like 
um, what kind of like personal connections did you find to when you were learning about No No Boys or 442nd? Yeah. What I think is interesting is I wanted to play up that, that there were multiple perspectives on this. The 442nd gets a lot of the sort of the attention when we're talking about, you know, World War II and Japanese American history. That's one of the things that we all point to. It's like, we're very proud of this as, as we should be. It was an, they were an amazing group of young men uh, there. But to your point, you know, the no-no boys were in their own way were as principled uh, in the, in what they felt and their response, you know, to all that. And I tried to to play that into the, the conversation that Katz ends up having with his father, mm -hmm. that his father felt incredibly betrayed by uh, the country for, you know, doing this to the family. And he felt that, you know, like risking his, his only son in, uh, in something like this was something, it was, there was, there was conflict and there was tension about that. And I don't know specifically in my own family's experience, but my grandfather did feel the need to go back to Japan in the fifties, mm. that he felt that the, the loss of, of dignity and the loss of station that followed you know, after World War II, he couldn't, you know, it's very hard for the, you know, the, the, the Japanese Americans to get jobs after, you know, World War II, because, you know, they, the face, like you were just the enemy mm. there and now, you know, uh, we're expected to hire you. So it was, you know, he ended up only being able to get a job in a candy factory, you know, this is my, you know, a grant, my grandfather, who's, uh, who's a, a very, an excellent salesman. He was worked for an import export company before the war. So this sense of diminishment, I think, weighed on him. And I think that was, you know, something I'm sure that was, you know, part of the, the challenge with my father and um, my own, my father did, uh, he, he enlisted, he was part of what was called the military intelligence service, which was the first school of, for translators, you know, James, this is interesting for you because you're, you know, working in Japanese language now, mm. but uh, the, the U.S. Uh, government knew that there was a, a war coming with Japan. So they thought, you know, we probably should have some people who speak the language so they can at least, you know, listen to radio intercepts. They can, you know, uh, translate documents, maybe even interrogate some people and, and prisoners and whatnot. So they created this language school. And the first language school was there at Chrissy Field uh, down there in San Francisco uh, there. And the, the first class was in place uh, when Pearl Harbor happened. And so they ultimately moved the school to, to uh, Minnesota. And my father was one of the several thousand, uh, mostly Nisei men who went through that particular school uh, and ended up, you know, in, in the army. Interestingly enough, Shig Morau was also in the MIS uh, school. Oh. <laughs> and um, they were, my dad and Shig were actually about the same age. And I think it's, it's possible they might've even run into each other at that mm. particular school. I, I, I don't know that. I'd like to believe it because I think that right. makes an incredible sort of connection that <laughs> they actually somehow knew each other. It's like, you know, but uh, who knows? Yeah, well, you kind you kind of make them meet in the book, I guess, because I believe, yeah, Katz is you know Katz inspired is, by your father. Yeah, absolutely. Katz is sort of a superhero version of my dad. Now, my dad was never a private detective. He never rode a motorcycle. He was never. He was not in the four forty second there. Did he but know judo elements. though. <laughs> yeah, a little, yeah, a little, a little bit. bit. <laughs> but um, there, there definitely are things about you know Katz is you know there's elements of my father. And oddly enough, not well, maybe not oddly enough. Um, Molly is the uh, the female character is a redheaded Irish woman from Ohio. My mother was Molly, a redheaded woman, Irish woman from Ohio. It's also a fictionalized sort of version of that. And you know, and I, what I always thought was amazing was how transgressive their relationship was in the early 1960s. Asian man, white woman, that was not the norm. Right. I mean, there's a lot of war brides. You saw there, there was, you know, there was interracial marriage, you know, was going on there, but there were still a lot of places where interracial marriage was illegal, according to state law. It wasn't until 1967 that all that was struck down. But again, you didn't see Asian men with Caucasian women. And mm -hmm. uh, so I thought my parents, I always thought of them as very brave uh, for, 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 for doing that. Yeah, probably contributed to the fact they didn't stay together very long. I mean, a lot of challenges with that, but mm -hmm. Hey, you know, a for effort. And I yes. guess the thing was, you know, they had, they basically long together long enough to have me. And I, I'm very, I'm very <laughs> grateful for that. Did your mom, uh, did your mom's family have any issues with her marrying your dad? Do you my know? grandmother was, you know, I, I was very close to my grandma, my, my, uh, my mom's mother, uh, my grandma there, and she always liked my dad uh, there. So I, I don't think there, there, there was, they knew he was a good, he was a good man uh, there. Um, 
So I, I think there might have been some issues, but you know, they were it was never anything overt. There was never any confrontations. There was nothing. There was no, you know, no uh, Thanksgiving, you know, day right. or anything like that. No, but uh, no, my 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 grand my grandmother was very was a wonderful woman um, and all that, and and very much loved my father. So even after they my my parents got divorced, she was very supportive of him. So I, I know that um, your your grandfather and your grandparents moved back to Japan. I and you mentioned that your grandfather came back a couple times. Mm -hmm. uh, the language barrier is probably pretty, pretty um, big, but I guess it was like a. Would there be an opportunity for someone in your family to know what it was like for him to move back to Japan, being from America after the yeah. war? That's actually part of that story comes from um, conversations with um, two of my cousins. Okay, uh, um, I'm the youngest of all of the kids. My father was the youngest of the three. Right. Uh, uh, siblings and I'm the youngest of the all the kids that um, his two um, uh, sisters had, so I have older cousins and they do recall in this conversation about one of the reasons why that the, it was sort of implied uh, there that the grandma and grandpa went back to Japan was this they felt that, it was mostly my grandfather because apparently my grandmother very much did want to stay in the United States but she felt you know it's like well if you know if Shuzo is going to go back I have to go back with him right. Uh, there but yeah that was that was a story that uh I, I learned from my cousins but i mean do you know what it was like for their grandparents to be in japan after you know yeah that's a good question i don't know um i would imagine it was very challenging you know yeah. i mean japan's mm -hmm. rebuilding even in the 1950s you know right. you're less than, you know a decade out uh you know there and these were it's like you were not here you're you know you're you know you left and now you're coming back it's like right. I, I don't know um that's that'd be a good story uh yeah. <laughs> interesting I, I, around that but yeah you're right I, i've never seen much written or uh, much documentation about how those folks right. were sort of welcomed back because i i, I only imagine that um thinking about how you, when you mentioned your dad going back and how they spotted him a mile away that he was not Japanese. Yeah. I I was wondering what that would be like for your grandparents to go back after having been away and living in America for so long yeah. and then going back and having the, you know, the the scar tissue of the war. Yes. Yeah. And all of that. that was probably very challenging. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can only imagine you know those conversations and you know uh, the, the the looks that people were going to you know to to give you it's like that's a that'd be a very interesting background for a story that's something that's <laughs> like hmm. but actually it's sort of that's a good question it's like i'm gonna i will talk to the cousins about that if they had any sort of insight especially your the cousins of your oldest aunt who took care of your grandmother i'm sure yeah. there was some opportunities of like oh this was a, what it was like when i first moved back and you know how hard it was and that i'm just curious for my own well, now i am too but but again it's like one of those things like that generation the, those generations they didn't talk about you know the feelings it's like you know the ultimate sort of stiff upper lip right know, but it's like it may have been really difficult but they would probably just say eh, you know and and move on right yeah or like Dumb identity wow. yeah so as far as like your own personal identity growing up um I guess with with a mixed background, with a, mm -hmm. a diverse background, um, do you feel like that has influenced you know, maybe your storytelling as well? Like, as far as yourself, like when people ask you, "Oh, do you, do you consider yourself Japanese American, or you're you know American first, or like you you probably throughout your whole life have gotten like the identity question? I'm I'm I guess yes. right, yeah. Yeah. What what's your relationship now to identity, and how does that relate to the, the stories that you want to tell? Yeah. Yeah. Um. Good question. Uh, I'm not sure I've even fully unpacked that myself. Yeah. Um. You know, there was a time when uh, I thought I was more Asian than I probably was because you grew up in Ohio and you it's like again you you're I felt different. And then I was an exchange student to Japan and I, I go to Japan and go, holy crap, I'm so American. It's not even fun. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of slaps you in the face, go, okay, then then what am I? And I think in, you know, I went to college and I studied Japanese, you know, as a Japanese language minor. I think that was part of sort of that processing. 
and all that. Now I sort of look at myself as like, you know, um, I am, I am uh, an example of that melting pot. I am, you know, I am mixed. I'm, I'm, I'm this, I'm this, I am all of uh, all that. And I'm very good with, and I'm very, yeah, I'm very comfortable with that. You know, the, the one thing that still bothers me is, you know, there, you, know, you get these check boxes and like you're filling out forms and whatnot, you know, and it gets to race. And it's like, and there's like, okay, where's the box for mixed? And there's usually, there wasn't for a long time a box right. for mixed. So there was this thing that says other. And just to confuse <laughs> people, I used to say other, you know, like let them figure it out uh, now. But to our, I think our credit uh, in like the last set, in the last couple census, sensei, census, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, Mixed is an option. It's like, good. We finally sort of, uh, we're, we're embracing that. So, um, yeah. It, and, and I do think that, you know, uh, this book has been a, a reconnection for me with my, I guess, more of my, my Japanese heritage. Hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm really, I'm very, I'm very happy about that. And then do you foresee more, more books set in this world? Oh. Absolutely. Uh, I'm probably more than two thirds of the way through the, the sequel. Oh, very uh, cool. I love writing about these characters and uh, I couldn't wait to get back to, to seeing where they go next. And San Francisco in the late fifties and into the sixties, like did anything interesting happen in San Francisco in the sixties? Like, yeah. Um, what a rich backdrop to sort of play against, you know, uh, there and to tell some interesting stories with some humor uh, there and, uh, yeah, and and I'm I'm finding some ways to incorporate more of those real people, but I definitely feel like that the, there's an Asian perspective to that history that hopefully we can tell in a not sort of over you know beaten over over the head kind of way, but uh, bringing some of those characters like a Shig Morale you know more to the forefront of our mm. sort of collective history. Yeah, I, I just looked up. Yeah, late in the late '60s, the term Asian American was actually born out of. Um, the SF State, um, the so I, I really? mentioned S, yeah SF State Ethnic Studies Program, um, okay. which was like they they fought for that program, the Ethnic Studies Program at SF State. So, yeah, good. For, yeah, so San Francisco is definitely a very interesting spot during that time. Yeah. Well, um, well, and again, what we're you know the the beats become the hippies, um, the you know the emergence <laughs> of the, the the gay community. Uh, to the the forefront of this, all this sort of interweaves together. Yeah, and what a really interesting time uh, that would have been. Well, yourself, like, uh, what is kind of like the transition for you, like going from uh, from nonfiction to fiction? Because I know you, you, yeah, you've been right. You're you're known as the love for cities guy, right? Like, I mean, city for, love for guy, yeah, city that's love amazing. guy, which is you know that's not not a bad label. That's great, you but know, great yeah. label, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and that's been my gig for the last you know dozen years or so. Um, and I continue to do that work. Uh, you know, I travel, I do talks, I do workshops. Uh, there, I suspect there probably will be another book in the future, but you know, uh, right now it's sort of like there's this competing thing uh, there. And there's an old adage that says you are what you think about. Right now, I'm thinking a lot more about the fiction side than I am necessarily about the nonfiction side. But it is interesting because I do get asked those questions a lot. I'm, I'm consulting with you know a few uh, uh, different clients uh, still on city issues uh, there. So it's kind of you know. I, I'm fine with it right now. I, I think it's it's actually kind of good. It keeps me it keeps both things fresh uh, right now. But um, yeah, I, I've definitely fallen in love with uh, with the writing process. I used to say I was a speaker who occasionally wrote you know, <laughs> four books in about ten years. Like you're not you're not Stephen King when you're you know pr you know producing at that level. But now I I'm embracing the idea that yeah I am actually a writer because I I'm actually loving the process. Mm. Uh, and, and loving, you know, digging into that. Um, I can't wait to see what uh, what these characters are going to do next. Yeah, because they do say like even nonfiction. Sure, they talk about truth, right? But then there's truth with a, a big T, which is explored in fiction, right? So like in, even in fantasy yeah. novels or sci-fi novels, they're they're exploring truths, but with a big T, like the yeah. ideas, the concepts. Um, so I, I do feel like there's a place for I, I think there is a place to explore some, you know, some of the ideas that you've probably explored in your nonfiction work in the fiction work. And I even see that even in the first few chapters of you going into like, oh, the how how um how are these like 
how is land being bought and what what's kind of the dealings like so yeah. so i, I can say oh, oh i can see some of peter's like uh, urban development sleeping in here you know <laughs> can't help it um but in some ways like the way i i, I want to talk about cities i want to make it feel real you know there san francisco feels like a character to me uh, there and of course, if I'm writing about a city, I'm I'm writing about it. I have this urbanist sort of you know uh, perspective uh, as well. So I'm glad it, it kind of comes through. And I think it served me well, sort of in, in this particular you know sort of conversation. Yeah, but I'm glad you noticed that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> as far yeah, as top like five, top five cities that you like. Okay. Oh man, that's <laughs> a hard question. Oh, that is a hard <laughs> question. You know, uh, and it kind of you know it depends on the day also and, and where you were last. I, I have absolutely fallen back in love with San Francisco because I'm thinking about it there. I've been out there twice just in the last less than 12 months uh, there. I love where I live, which is a good thing. I live in St. Petersburg, Florida, which is an amazing city um, for a Florida city. It's by far the most walkable city uh, there. And I'll make the argument that it's the best city in, in Florida, you know, there. So there's two at least. Uh, <laughs> I, and I do, I do have a soft spot for college towns. There's something special about college towns. There's an energy about that multi-generational uh there there's usually good bookstores good comic book stores um good board game stores too so those are important mm. to me so yeah what about you guys favorite cities mm, that's a tough one uh i like yokohama go ahead Hopefully, you, you know, you you like where you live. I think that's important or where you, you know, you are. The thing about city love that I say all the time is city love is not monogamous. You should right. love more than one place. <laughs> yes. Really, you really should because, it, you know, travel is good for the soul uh, there. But having finding a way to connect with the, the places that we go to, that's important. Uh, yes. You know, so, yeah, non-monogamous city love. <laughs> that's very good i i do like where i live i live in atwater village which is a small part of los angeles itself mm -hmm. so it's very walkable there are a lot of stores around and lots of restaurants it makes a huge difference you know it's hard to you know to connect with your city when you're driving 45 miles an hour yes when you're right. walking riding a bike a one wheel a scooter something like that it definitely feels different i do notice in asia i yeah in america i'm always driving in Asia, like I lived in Tainan and Taiwan before, and then I'm living in Sioux, and I take the train and I bike everywhere. And it does change the connection, I feel like. It, it mm -hmm. makes it more like I'm actually walking through crowds of, or walking through people. I'm, I'm not having this metallic barrier between me and like other yes. humans. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I said in my first book, I called the car a prophylactic that keeps you from connecting with your, your <laughs> city. Uh, and it's funny you mentioned I've 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 spoken Tainan. Uh, oh, really? Okay. That, that was a city that was literally overrun by scooters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was a problem, man. And I I remember seeing that there was actually a, a a municipal service that was coming around and it was finding scooters that had basically been lost or abandoned and dumping them into trucks because there huh. were so many scooters. Uh, that were there. I mean, somebody leaves it there for a week or something like that. I think yeah. they're coming around. It's like into the truck mm, yeah yeah scooters just, everywhere that's that's a big problem with taiwan tainan and then like taipei as well it's just like the the traffic accident rate is just not good you know compared to yeah. like other comparable countries in asia yeah it's it's tough uh so yeah we uh before we finish we we generally like to finish off uh dan sorry did you have any other follow-up questions no. yeah no. uh to finish off, we like to ask our guests, you know, what's something that you're doing to stay balanced? We're, we're called Yin and Yang podcast, kind of like a play on Yin and Yang. And uh, what's something that uh, Peter does that, you know, with work, life, you know, personal life, how do you keep balance in, in your own life? Yeah, It's a good question. Um, right now, uh, I got married last year. Congratulations. Uh, congratulations. Thank you very much. Uh, we're very happy. Um, we're both passionate about some we have uh hobbies my my wife is an incredible painter an incredible seamstress she loves to sew she's making clothes it's amazing stuff uh there and i am a board game nerd i love complex thinky board games the kind of stuff that really gets you immersed in a you know particular sort of challenge like you're you know building a company or you know um uh, building a, a a nation state something like that uh mm. there so i find that that is my sort of therapy as well 
Um, I still am. A, I still love to work out and, you know, we, I live in Florida, so it's pretty easy to get out and, and walk every day, uh, mm. you know, there. So finding that sort of balance and just the intellectual, it's like put down the book, turn off the TV and go and think about something else for a while. So that seems to be pretty good advice for finding some balance. What's the, what's the most recent board game that you're like really fixated on? Uh, believe it or not, there was uh, one, um, uh, called barrage which is about hydroelectric power it's like, it's like <laughs> yeah it kind of is so uh yeah um the, you know there's amazing board games around all kinds of stuff um i think actually my favorite is one about called terraforming mars which oh. is about you mm. know these mega corporations turning mars into a habitable planet over like generations and whatnot but uh yeah it's a little Something a little different, a little a little bit more sophisticated than Risk and Monopoly. Right, mm. which are good games, but you know, yeah. I I heard someone say that this is like the golden age of board games. It absolutely is. The last 10, 15 years, board games have gone through the roof. There's probably board game cafes. I know there's board game cafes yeah, in yeah. Los Angeles. I'm sure there's board game cafes uh, there in Japan as well because board games are, you know, I love, you know, video games are cool, but board games are different because board games are social. It requires us to sit at a table together, you know, there. And that I think was the component that is sort of missing. And yeah, granted you can play Fortnite, you know, with, you know, wired up with your friends all around the world, but it's not the same as being in the same room and sitting around the board, having a cup of coffee, having a beer, whatever it is. Uh, there, because I think it's that social connection that's made board games sort of come back to the forefront, that they're sort of an antidote to some of the other things that we've done, you know, to our, our ourselves and creating this sort of uh, high stress, sometimes, you know, occasionally toxic environment. It's a good, uh, it's a good antidote to that. Right. I think there's probably people who are very hungry for that kind of human interaction after, you know, absolutely. what we went through. Yeah. With the pandemic. Yeah. That's absolutely true. I mean, that's something I've seen, you know, and I've been talking about that in my sort of city work is that there's this, there was a pent up demand and a pent up energy. People were reminded how important it is to actually be able to connect with each other and how important something as simple as like green space in a park. Uh, was. Mm. Like people always said they love the park. But they didn't realize how important the park was until they couldn't go to the mall. They couldn't go to the theater. They couldn't go to the restaurants. Like, where else are you going to go? Like, oh, let's go to the park. And it's like, oh, this is kind of cool. This is important. And I think it there's, you know, COVID was an amazing reminder in many ways of the things that actually are probably more important than uh, than we than we believed in the past. So right, things that we took for granted, you know, and it's like just walking yeah, and just hanging out with a friend or. It was yes. the, it's the silver lining in a really shitty cloud, right? So. <laughs> and you got a book out of it too. So that's good. Yeah. I got two books out of it. Yeah, two books out of it. So yeah, I did the 10 year anniversary of my first book uh, there. It came out in uh, 2021. That was, uh, was a lot of fun to go back and revisit that and revise it and update it. And then the second one was, uh, yeah, this new book, Hunter's Point. Awesome. Cool. So uh, we have a language corner that we do at the end. Uh, so uh, I know. So I, I can start um, right now. I'm learning Japanese and um, a, a phrase that I like that I learned recently was um, Hankoki. Hankoki is basically a rebellious phase. So I was talking with, I practice jujitsu and I was talking with one of, uh, uh, with my senpai who gives me a ride home. Uh, and he was saying his son's going through a hankoki, going through a rebellious phase. I was <laughs> like, oh, cool. Yeah. He's like, yeah, it's a little bit late for him. His his son's like uh, late teens. And I said, oh, man, for me, my my rebellious phase was in my 20s. So, so I'm even later. Um, so I thought that was a fun phrase, hankoki. So it's like han, hanko means like to rebel and then key means like a period of time so that's a phrase i learned recently I'm writing that down yeah okay <laughs> um yeah any any phrases or vocab that you've i know peter you're you you're 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 a fiction writer now so you're 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 probably pondering yeah. words a lot now these days yeah i i should have something in my back pocket around that uh i don't have anything at the moment so uh, i do notice in your yeah, I noticed in your book that you do introduce, um, you know, I like how in your book you do introduce like Japanese phrases, but like uh, in, in a very natural setting, in a natural way, you know. So, so like, uh, you know, with the character, welcome yeah. back, uh, Katsya, yeah. 
So I did like for for that. Did you have to revisit some of your your Japanese minor? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, it's when you start putting yourself in that situation. It's like, uh, you know, it's like I, I remember more than I probably think I do. It's like, and you start, mm. you know, it's like, oh yeah, the words kind of come back, you know, and concepts. Um, I was just, I, I'll say this: I was writing something last night, and it's in the second book, and I revisited the uh, on and giri. Oh, you know, okay. the, you know, the obligation. The obligation that we that we take on voluntarily and that which is sort of required of us you know and i was mm. explaining how the difference between the two you know that on is like oh of course i i will do that for you but giri is something that's like it could be heavy you know there and it's it, it's felt and it's experienced in a different way but it's one of those like only the japanese would have multiple words for obligation to, mm. to express sort of how they it, it actually you know uh you know manifests so yeah on and giri i'm writing that down that's interesting yeah <laughs> o-n and g-i-r-i yeah g-i-r-i okay dan do you have any any phrases or things that you 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 like recently or yeah? oh you know um there's a word in japanese called shippai shippai is like you kind of like it's um kind of foiled or ruined or uh, screwed. Uh, very hard to like translate. Like shpaista uh, is like uh, um, it didn't happen kind of thing. Like if you want something and it's like oh I lost it, I, I can't even like. It sounds like it. a swear word actually. Yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> swear words in Japanese are like kuso or something like that. Right. To, yeah. Go die or something. Yeah. 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 Well, kuso is like. Oh, oh kuso um, means shit. I guess. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, baka. Baka. Stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Aho. Aho. Did you know that there's like a new word of um baka? The young kids use this word called. Do you know what sus means? <laughs> I'm learning these from my kids. Sus. Oh, like something As is in, sus. Oh, suspect, suspect right suspect yeah, okay, yeah, yeah yeah so there i guess yeah. out of the games video games there's a new word called sussy baka like sus suspect like but baka like in stupid in the japanese one sussy baka sussy baka sussy baka interesting yeah my kids started using it i was like where'd you guys get that from do you guys even know what that means like, i don't know <laughs> but everyone's using it i was like and then they went to go and found out it was like sus as like sussy you know very suspect like yeah. and yeah. baka mean like stupid I was like, oh, they <laughs> took it from Japanese. Why? Why did they do that? Well, that's cool. I mean, that's it's a great example of how language evolves. You know, yes. uh, there and uh, yeah, very cool. good. Awesome. All right, Peter, thank you so much. I know it's midnight there, and you probably gotta get to bed. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so it's a week. It's a weekend, so I think. I'm okay, cool. good. So yeah, time. yeah. I I did have one thought. I just came up like the thought of language. So, because of the setting, did you have to go revisit sort of like. How did they speak during that time? Well, you know, what what yeah. what is some of the vocab of the Issei or the Nisei generation? Like, did you have to go do a lot of research to that? Or yeah. well, I, I had to be conscious of not using like sort of idioms or phrases that you know we would use today. Right. Yeah. Know, maybe a little bit more formal language, uh, you know, all that. Yeah, it was. I was trying to be conscious of that, but I, I was not going to be like you know uh, slavish to the idea of having to everything having to be you know, perfectly in tune for that particular time period. Uh, I, I think, you know, conscious of it, but I wasn't going to be, you know, so precious about it. It's like, oh, well, they never use that. But you know what? The, the one thing I will say this, that is weird that we kind of take for granted is the ability to just rapidly communicate with people. I mean, in storytelling today, it's very easy for character A to talk to character B and, you know, move the story along that way. Landlines, landlines. I mean, that was <laughs> there. You know, and uh, no answering machines. Like, how do people? Yeah. So, but somehow right. we have to keep the story moving along. But yeah, that was that is maybe the hardest thing, less the language thing, but the the technology that technology. was available uh, to them at the time. That was a uh, yeah. You got to you got to like okay, how are we gonna do this? Yeah, switch it to like okay, what did my dad do? Or yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, what we're doing here right now, this is like magic. This is yes. magic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. All right. Um, anything else? So 
look out for Hunter's Point, which should be out by the time, which is out now and yeah, now. will be out yes. by the time this podcast is released. Please check it out. It's the it's a bestseller on Kindle for the uh, under the Asian American category, I believe. Yeah, is that correct? Yeah. I am now and am I am now apparently an Amazon bestselling author. Hooray! Very nice. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. And uh, anything else you want to plug? You have you have uh you wrote another book in COVID and you have a sequel in the works. Anything else you want to? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, you can check out my stuff at uh, peterkagayama.com. And then if you want to look for my nonfiction stuff, you're late in Shouldn't Cities. Uh, my book, uh, the, the book I'm best known for is For the Love of Cities. And the, the newest one is For the Love of Cities Revisited. It was the 10 year anniversary edition uh, of that. And yeah. So awesome. Cool. Great. And then awesome. uh, moving forward, are we expecting more fiction, nonfiction? What, what, think- what do you think? Yeah. Fiction, yes. Uh, like I said, I'm well into the sequel. Um, I can actually, I'd like to, I'd strike while the iron's hot. I think maybe by the end of the year, we'll have a second novel. Uh, oh, in wow. The Moto series out. So, okay. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. I'm excited Great. about that. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Peter. And uh, yeah, uh, this was a great conversation. I think we, we covered a lot and, and it was great to learn about the background of your story and, and about yourself as well. Yeah. Thank you guys. Much appreciated. Love what you Thanks, guys do. Peter. All right. All right. Thank you. Take care. All right. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye.